Again, brethren, let's look to the Lord for his help as we begin our time together in this hour. Our Father, we acknowledge that your word again and again condemns idle, thoughtless, heartless approaches to you. We would not have it said of us, this people draws near with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We do desire to seek you with all of our hearts, acknowledging our need for present grace, for present enablement by the Holy Spirit, if we are to profit from our time together. And so we come to you, the loving, giving Heavenly Father, and trust you to give us every gift of grace needed for this hour, and we trust you to grant our need to the praise of your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now we continue in this hour, brethren, to consider some of the specific guidelines for the construction of our sermons. Having considered guidelines relative to the introduction and then to the argument or discussion of our sermons, we move on in this hour to begin to consider principles that ought to be operative when we construct the conclusions of our sermons. And by way of introducing this department of our concern, I want to address three things relative to this very neglected but vital part of sermon preparation. So this is a rather lengthy introduction in which we will address the terminology of the conclusion, the necessity for the conclusion, and the crucial importance of the conclusion. So let's think for a few minutes concerning the matter of the terminology used for the conclusion. In classical rhetoric, the introduction is designated as the exordium, so the conclusion, as the introduction is called the exordium, so the conclusion is generally designated as the peroration. And if you were to look up the word peroration in the dictionary, you would find it is defined as, quote, the concluding part of a speech in which there is a summing up and an emphatic recapitulation. However, other words may be used in printed sermons to indicate the general idea of a conclusion. And here, Austin Phelps is a real help to us. He writes, In what respect is the conclusion of a sermon distinct from the other parts of it? This inquiry is answered in part by the titles given to the conclusion in the nomenclature of the pulpit. In the practice of the older preachers, we find it under the title of, quote, uses of the subject of discourse. President Edwards and many others commonly call the conclusion the, quote, application of the subject and of its discussion. Dr. Emmons and often Dr. Finney term this part of a discourse the, quote, improvement of the subject. Dr. Dwight, that was Timothy Dwight, president of Yale College, Dr. Dwight almost invariably designates it by the word, quote, 
remarks, yet rarely by the term, quote, inferences. Others adopt the less specific title of, quote, reflections, and some propose to conclude a sermon with, quote, observations. This diversity of nomenclature is no evidence of indefiniteness in the conception of the thing. A single element distinguishes every variety of conclusion technically so-called. So you will find this varied terminology that is used. We will work with the subject of peroration or conclusion. Once again, because we're not dealing with the raw materials of special revelation in our Bibles, but with the data of general revelation, we must expect a diversity of terminology and a broad spectrum of understanding relative to this matter of the conclusion of a sermon. So much in this introductory part of our lecture relative to the terminology. Secondly, by way of introduction, I want to say something regarding the necessity for the conclusion. The words of Dabney are hard to improve upon addressing this matter of the necessity of a conclusion. This last member, I'm adding these words, in my division of the constituent elements of the sermon is, of course, the conclusion. The reasons for its introduction correspond to those which require an exordium or an introduction. As the approach to the main subject without any preparations would be abrupt and unskillful, so to relinquish it without conclusion would be awkward and incomplete. As a transition stage of sentiment was found necessary to raise the hearer from his ordinary apathy to the tone of the sacred truth to be discussed, so a transition is desirable to consign the listener to the state of sacred meditation and conviction in which the sermon is designed to result. Again, the aim of all rhetorical discourse is to produce a practical determination of the hearer's will. That's a key statement, and that shows a deep sympathy to uh, some of the points made by the classic rhetoricians, and he acknowledges that. The aim of all rhetorical discourse is to produce a practical determination of the hearer's will. If you know these things, Jesus said, blessed are you if you do them. James' words, be not hearers only, but doers of the word. And then he goes on to underscore again, the necessity of the conclusion to every sermon that we preach. I like to use the illustration of an airplane ride. The plane must back off from the gate, get to the end of the runway, take off, cruise at altitude, but eventually it must land and park at the appropriate gate of its destination. In a very real sense, the whole complex of the various activities of a plane ride have the end as their goal. 
When I got in that plane in Grand Rapids and then it pushed back from the gate, got to the end of the runway, took off, came in. My goal was to see it parked at the gate in Newark so I could meet Vince Rimbach and his big chariot be brought here in order to meet with you on Monday afternoon. God has so made us that we feel uncomfortable if we are left hanging at 30,000 feet and we don't get the plane down on the tarmac into the gate and disembark. And we need to think of our conclusion in one way in that analogy. But then finally, by way of introduction, I want to say something concerning the crucial importance of the conclusion. The references to the necessity for a conclusion indicate how important secular orators and rhetoricians regard the conclusion. I give you just a sampling from Etter. He writes, The last and crowning part of a sermon is the conclusion. The culmination of the preacher's power may often be seen in these few closing paragraphs. The highest skill of a preacher's oratory, the richest treasure of his scholarship, and the utmost force of his moral character should here be put forth in their combined power in the outpouring of the grandest eloquence. The greatest care, then, should be taken in the composition of the conclusion in order to make it the most telling part of the entire sermon. And then he goes on in the quote that you have uh, to show how central this concept was in secular political oratory. And then I quote him further, If the conclusion is so important in secular and political oratory, it is still more so in the preaching of the gospel. And then he shows how that the summing up of a lawyer before a jury is so critical to carrying his case. And likewise then, when we as the servants of God have laid out the truth of God, it is crucial that we have a summation and a conclusion that drives home the truth that we have sought to set before God's people and before sinners. In summary, let me say this. If these introductory remarks have done nothing else, I hope they've impressed upon you the fact that concluding your sermons is not a matter to be left to chance, to impulse, or to be totally ignored. Rather, how we are to conclude the sermon should be given the same meticulous analysis and care given to the other departments of sermonic preparation. My reading of the older writers indicates that they would say a hearty amen to what I've just asserted. Now, in opening up the subject, I'll follow the same outline as I've used in dealing with the other aspects of our sermon preparation, namely... We'll consider the goals or functions of the conclusion, the means to attain these goals or to implement these functions, and finally, I will conclude with some practical directives concerning the construction of our conclusions. First of all, then, what ought to be our goals when the work of exegesis has been done 
and uh, disposition has been done and organization. And we're now contemplating where is this plane going to come down and park? What should be the thrust of the sermon upon the consciousness, the affections, and the wills of my hearers? What are the goals that should determine how I construct a conclusion? That's what we want to take up first of all. Unless there's precise thinking on this subject, we'll merely grasp at expedience in seeking to wind down our sermons and be done. Or worse yet, will be like those described by a French master of the pulpit. He spoke of preachers who were like a dog following his own tail until he flops in exhaustion. You've seen a dog chasing his own tail, and he said he's afraid that this is how many preachers end their sermons. Or you may be aware of a very famous bridge in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. It's been given a title. It's called the Bridge to nowhere. You're driving along a rather well-worn route, Route 30, going into Lancaster proper, and you see an exit, and it looks like a normal exit ramp, and it merges into a bridge that comes back over the highway and exits into a cornfield. And so they call it the bridge to nowhere. Obviously, they've blocked off that exit because it is a bridge to nowhere. Apparently, it was some kind of a bureaucratic boondoggle that people thought there was going to be another road and they never got to it, but they've left the bridge there. Now, that's what could be written over many sermons. There was an exit that's coming to a close, comes back over, but it goes nowhere. The person sitting there, if he were pressed with a gun at his head and asked the question, tell me, what does the preacher expect you to do in the light of what he's told you? He'd say, I don't have a clue. Pull the trigger. I don't have a clue. Not a clue. What has he told you? Well, he's told us this, this, and this. What does he expect you to do with that? I don't have a clue. I'll have to work that out on my own. All because there was not a carefully crafted conclusion, and perhaps the reasons for that uncrafted conclusion was the preacher didn't have a clear idea of what are the goals and the functions of a conclusion. I'm prepared to assert, unless we have some finely chiseled concept for the goals or functions of the conclusions we will not be able to effectively construct the conclusions of our sermons. So, I want to address three goals or functions in the conclusions of our sermons. Number one, the first is that of seeking to rivet to the minds of your hearers the essential content of the sermon. As we begin the sermon with an overall objective, the various points or stages of development have necessitated a concentration on the parts at the expense of holding in the mind of our hearers the whole. We've had point one, point two, point three, perhaps point four. But when we are done opening up the various parts, 
we must now seek to rivet the essential content of the whole in our conclusions. You have a beautiful example of this in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Now in the things which we are saying, the chief point is this. We have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now, if you didn't get it along the way, this is what I was trying to tell you. The chief point is this. There is a marvelous example of this principle. So, when we come to the conclusion of the sermon, the goal of our conclusions must be seeking to rivet to the minds of the hearer the essential content of the sermon. By means of the conclusion, then, the unity of our discourse ought to be vividly and forcefully seen and felt, since we believe that the saving and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit is carried on by the rational perception of truth. This element in presenting the truth is critical. Second goal. The second goal or function of the conclusion should be that of pressing home to the consciousness and consciences of your hearers the moral and emotional thrust of the sermon. The moral and the emotional thrust of the sermon. And here Dabney is of great help in this matter. He writes, its object, the conclusion, is only to place the truth which has been explained or proved in contact with the heart and conscience. Every word which exceeds this is an excrescence. That's an abnormal growth like a bunion on your toe. Anything beyond that shouldn't be there. He goes on to say, When once the truth has found full access to the hearer's soul... The best possible thing to be done is to leave it there performing its own work. Protracting the discourse beyond this point only undoes what has already been effected. One object of the conclusion is to awaken emotion. Here's the staid, doughty Calvinist Dabney saying, Remember, one object of the conclusion is to awaken emotion. Remember that vehement affections are never long sustained. When the conviction has once invested itself with strong feeling in the soul of the listener, that's the propitious moment to dismiss him to his own meditations. If he is then detained, the emotion will speedily subside and with it the impression. The most important thing, therefore, is that you know when to stop and that you be sure to stop when you have done. So Dabney reminds us that a goal and function of the conclusion is pressing home to the consciousness and consciences of your hearers the moral and emotional thrust of the sermon. A sermon is not only meant to help people to know, but also to feel and to act. And we should consciously determine that our hearers will not only receive the light of inscripturated truth, 
but feel the heat and the pressure of that truth upon their emotions and upon their wills. If the text or subject should be productive of encouragement, then exhortation and admonition to see and embrace the text in that light should be given. On the other hand, if shame and conviction should be felt, then this issue should be pressed home to the consciences of your hearers. If new dimensions of appreciation for and experience of love to God and others should be evoked, the conclusion should indicate how and why this is to be done. Again, I quote from Dabney, the etymological relationship between the words emotion and motive gives correct expression to a truth. It is the emotions which immediately move the will. To produce volition, it is not enough that the understanding be convinced. Affection must be aroused. The object held before the soul must be shown to belong to the category of the true, but also to that of the good. For where the latter aspect is not present to receive the appetency of the soul, the truth of the object is as powerless to produce movement as though it were fiction. He's delving into some biblical psychology, and it's a bit of philosophical perspective, but I believe your own experience will validate what you're saying. It's not enough that my mind affirms it has received the light of truth. That truth must be seen in love and desire if it's going to move me and if it's going to mold me. And he goes on in that quote that you can read at your leisure to amplify that perspective. First goal then, rivet the truth to the mind. Second goal, pressing home to the consciousness and conscience of the hearers, the moral and emotional thrust in the third place, the goal of our conclusion should be that of appealing to the conscience and wills of our hearers, seeking them to respond to the volitional demands embodied in the sermon. We move on from seeking to address the emotions and the will to appealing that the will be active in the light of that truth. The clear teaching of James 1 relative to the danger of being hearers of the word and self-deceived if it doesn't issue in doing ought always to be present in our thinking when we work out the substance of the conclusion of our sermons. Our people need to know that they have been sitting before things that are not only to be seen, but they are to be felt, and also there is something to be done in the, as a result of our preaching. If we have sought to give consolation, that consolation must be embraced and assimilated. If we've set forth promises, those promises are to be embraced in faith. If we have preached a more densely doctrinal section in consecutive exposition or in a topical expository sermon, that doctrine is not only to be understood but loved and the life is to be given up to its molding and shaping influence. 
If a particular sin has been identified, it's to be repented of. And Christ is to be embraced in his grace and power to mortify and to overcome those sins. So it matters not what the particular focus of the sermon has been. There is something to be felt and there is something to be done. And in our conclusion, we as preachers need to appeal to the affections and to the will. As surely as the Bible teaches us that truth and right affections are always the root of true obedience, it also teaches that the acid test of our professed experience of these things is obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He that loves me not keeps not my sayings. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father. The word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those that heard it. Writing on the five methods for concluding our sermons, again, I quote Dabney. The object of the application is to bring the truth which has been established in the discussion to bear immediately upon the conscience and will. To bear immediately upon the conscience or the will. The application may be either general or special. The former is one which urges a principle of duty concerning all class of hearers alike. Thus, the truth that we know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man comes results in the application, watch therefore, an injunction suitable alike to believer and unbeliever. The special application is that which separates the hearers into classes and directs the truth to their several consciences in the particular phase appropriate to each. Now that's critical. He's saying you're tailor-making your application to the old seasoned saint, to the new believer, to the young person, to the unconverted. And in spite of the fact that it places Dabney almost seems to go overboard about having a central proposition and unity of discourse, here he's saying that our applications may well be of necessity diffusive as we see that that truth is a truth from which one can make different dresses and different suits to fit those that are sitting before us. Yet, here's his caution, the subdivision of your audience into classes must not be carried too far, lest the multiplicity of your heads of application should render the discourse technical, tedious, and dry, just where the unction and movement should be the greatest. Beautiful balance in that council. Well, let me say then by summary, these are the three things that comprise the goal or functions of the conclusion. Our conclusion should be aimed at riveting to the minds of our hearers the essential content of the sermon, pressing home to their consciousness of the the, uh, hearers, the moral and emotional and volitional thrust of the sermon, and then appealing to that enlightened conscience and the will to embrace the volitional demands of our sermons. And I'm not going to read it. It's thrilling, but it would take too much time. That quote you have of the description of 
Thornwell, when he came to his application, it is absolutely thrilling. It makes you say, Lord, raise him from the dead and let him preach once before me. I just would love to hear it. Or Lord, why didn't you let people invent tape recorders and cameras earlier? It's an absolutely thrilling account of a man who was obviously a master of using the conclusion as a vital part of his preaching. Now then, having addressed the goals of the conclusion, now we come secondly to the means to attain these goals or incorporate these functions into the construction of our conclusions. Dabney suggests five ways in which the conclusion can legitimately be handled. Gave much thought to this. Phelps, in his book, has more than a hundred pages addressing the subject of the conclusion. And as with many other areas of sermon preparation, you and I will learn by observation and experience, but especially to give you help when both observation and experience are limited. And again, I'm conscious that I may be speaking by the DVDs to men new in the ministry let me suggest several practical means of accomplishing these goals of the conclusion to your sermons. And I'm going to set before you four different ways by which you may pursue the different goals that should be present in the conclusion. First of all, by the use of resume or recapitulation. If we are aiming at drawing together all the beams of light from our sermon and focusing them in the conclusion, then a judicious recapitulation is in order much of the time. Phelps suggests that there are six elements in an effective recapitulation. I've omitted the last two, and I want to pass on to you the four that he identifies. Number one, Brevity. He writes, a recapitulation should be condensed to one sentence. I'm not sure that I would go that far. Brevity, yes, but one sentence, possibly impossible. It should not be just a shrunken repreachment of the entire sermon. Miniature is not a replay, so we should aim at brevity, and that's why we have to labor at it, to take what may have been 30, 40 minutes of exposition and to reduce those things to real fancy perfume, not toilet water, uh, not just uh, $5 stuff. We've got to reduce it down to its very essence so that there will be brevity. And then secondly, he suggests restriction to the foregoing materials. The conclusion, and especially the recapitulation, is not a time to introduce new materials into the sermon. And then perspicuity or clarity. It must be evident that the conclusion is indeed constructed as a recapitulation or resume of the content of the sermon. It must never degenerate into simply becoming old stuff beaten thin at the edges or new and novel stuff introduced at this point in the sermon. Hence, perspicuity or clarity of structure in the discussion are vital to a good recapitulation. And Phelps 
catches us with a very helpful insight. He suggests if your divisions can't be simply and clearly given in a recapitulatory conclusion, the onus is on you and on me to construct heads and divisions that are more well chiseled and clearly stated. If we cannot say, now brethren, we have seen together, da-dum-da-dum, 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 and together they if you gotta go to dum 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 and to dum 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 to no 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 you you haven't you haven't well chiseled your headings go back and rework them very helpful to me very helpful counsel so in addition to brevity restriction to the foregoing materials clarity he suggests climactic order. It is at this point that we should seek to bring our hearers to feel the force of the thought that has been developed throughout the sermon. And here again I lean upon Dabney. He writes, Each several head of discussion may be likened to one strand. It is the conclusion which twines them all together, combining their strength and drawing the convinced hearer irresistibly to his duty. The separate branches of argument are the parallel rays of the Son of Truth. Beautiful imagery coming now. The conclusion is the lens which refracts them into one burning focus. It's a beautiful sunny day. The rays of the sun are scattered everywhere. You take a magnifying glass and those rays come through the glass and they will start a fire on a leaf. They'll burn the hole in your skin. He said, that's what your conclusion should be. You've given this diffusive exposition of truth. Now we need to bring it all through this lens and come to a burning point in the mind and in the souls of our hearers. Once more, these several parts of the argument must be presented by the speaker and considered by the hearers singly in detail, for to mingle the discussion of them together could result only in confusion and obscurity. Yes, we have separated the building materials. We've constructed the house in which you can tell the difference between the foundation, the walls, and the roof. But that house is a sermon which is calculated to move our hearers to feel and to do something. And it's in the conclusion that we are seeking to bring that home to their conscience. And as we do, as Phelps suggests, we should do so using climactic order. In other words, building to the point where the most pressure will be felt upon the conscience and the affections. So I suggest that's the first way to construct a conclusion by the use of resume and recapitulation. The second way to implement the goals of the conclusion is by inference. An inference is a logical deduction from what has comprised the solid arguments that constituted the body or discussion of the sermon. These inferences should be logical or natural and above all, compelling. The uses in the Puritan sermons were generally given in the form of inferences. In the light of what has been established in the opening up of the text, here are the inferences. If this text is true, then this is true, 
and it applies to you and to you and to you, demanding that you feel this and that you will this if you are to receive the word in faith and obedience. And then thirdly, the third way of pursuing the goals for a conclusion is by giving specific delineations of the demands of the truth considered. By giving specific delineations of the truth considered. For example, if you were expounding the offices of Christ, then you should state that if he is indeed God's great and final prophet, then his words must be authoritative and final in the life of those who profess to have received him as their prophet. That means, my dear brother, if Christ is your prophet, when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, do you embrace that word as regulative? In your conscience, do you think daily, I must relate to this woman in a way that embodies and reflects and validates the gospel? I must love her with the sensitive, caring, selfless love wherewith Christ loved me and all of his people. And you press it home to the conscience. You don't let Christ as prophet of his people float by. Oh, that's lovely. That's nice. Yeah, Christ is my prophet. Is he your prophet? And you press home to the conscience the implications of Christ being someone's prophet. Or, if you were dealing with the general duty stated in Luke 18.1, he spoke a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And you've given an exposition of the parable, and the promise of our Lord shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry unto him day and night. And then the conclusion of the parable, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find the faith on the earth? Our Lord seems to be anticipating few are going to take this seriously. Few are going to live by it. Are you going to be one of those? Were he to come today, would he find you as one showing that you have committed yourself to him and that you believe his words? You see, you, you go from what you've expounded to the implication to the hearers. Now, I'm fully aware of the fact there are some who speak very disparagingly about this matter of drawing inferences from the text, particularly when those inferences are pointed in the direction of close application to the consciences of our hearers. But until 2 Timothy 3.16 is rubbed out of my Bible, I am under obligation to do it. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, period. No. Teaching, then growing out of the teaching, where it exposes sin, reproof. And where it exposes sin, by reproof, it shows the right way for correction and then for literally child training. Instruction like a father teaches his child in righteousness. And so when I've extracted the teaching of the passage, it is appropriate that I say to my people, dear people, if you embrace this portion of the word, 
This is how it trains you in righteousness. This is where it reproves you. This is where it corrects you. The scriptures, such as 2 Timothy 3.16, and the history of God-owned preaching clearly indicate that this method of bringing the word of God home to the consciences, the affections, and wills of our people is the kind of preaching which is effective with the blessing of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the ends for which God established preaching, namely, the conversion of sinners and the edification of the people of God. And here, if you have not heard the lectures on application, uh, they were given in the last unit, and one of the axioms, I think it's axiom number four, I would urge you to get hold of at least the CDs of that, if not the DVDs, to demonstrate that preaching without application, I'm prepared to say, is not biblically warranted preaching. It simply is not. When we have answered the question, what does the passage say, we are under obligation to answer the next question, so what? What and so what? And when we've accurately given the what, we must painstakingly labor at the so what, and though the so what may unfold at different points through the sermon, it comes to a heightened, concentrated expression in the conclusion of our sermons. So we've considered the goals of the conclusion, the various means to attain those goals, and then God willing, after lunch, in that very testing, trying hour, uh, I will take up thirdly some practical directives concerning the construction of our conclusions. And then we'll be done. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we are conscious once again that you've laid upon us a responsibility that makes us cry out, who is sufficient for these things? And yet, Lord, you have said through the words of your apostle, you have made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And we pray that you will take us in hand afresh and give us renewed zeal to fulfill our task, to make full proof of our ministry. We recognize it is a sobering thing to stand and to speak in the name of our Savior. Give us grace to do it as we ought. Hear our prayers as we offer them in Jesus' name. Amen.